This episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast contains mention of suicide, which may be upsetting for some listeners. Ever heard of Loopy Valez? In the pilot episode of the 1990s sitcom Frasier, Roz asks Frasier that question, mispronouncing Lupe's name. He hadn't, she continues. Lupe Velez, the movie star from the 30s? Well, her career hit the skids, so she decided she'd make one final stab at immortality. She figured if she couldn't be remembered for her movies, she'd be remembered for the way she died, and all Lupe wanted was to be remembered. So she plans this lavish suicide. Flowers, candles, silk sheets, white satin gown, full hair and makeup, the works. She takes the overdose of pills, lays on the bed, and imagines how beautiful she's going to look on tomorrow's front page. Unfortunately, the pills don't set well with the enchilada combo plate she sadly chose as her last meal. She stumbles to the bathroom, trips, and goes headfirst into the toilet. And that's how they found her. Cue the uproarious laughter. Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. That story, repeated on Frasier and elsewhere, is a Hollywood legend about Wampus baby star of 1928, Lupe Valez. It originated from Kenneth Anger's book, Hollywood Babylon. Kenneth's version is more vulgar, more detailed. He lingers on the description of Lupe's Mexican supper and jokes about it causing her stomach trouble because he was a racist. He calls her boyfriend a gigolo and calls Lupe a C-word flashing Hollywood party girl, though of course he said the full word, because he was a misogynist. He revels in the grotesque because he was grotesque himself. He's also a fucking liar, and he turned Lupe's death into a joke that has become, over the years, believed by plenty of people as gospel. Michelle Vogel fights the good fight in uncovering the truth about Lupe's death in her book, Lupe Velez, The Life and Career of Hollywood's Mexican Spitfire. I used this extensively as a resource and really recommend that you go check it out. I'll be touching on her death, of course, but I want to look at her life, too, and, as is my way, I want to examine how she was presented to audiences of her time via the media, with a particular focus on fan magazines. In that Frasier episode, the character Roz continues on to say, All she wanted was to be remembered. Will you ever forget that story? But there's so much more, in my opinion, to remember about her story. There's so much more to say about a woman who inspired this quote from the notoriously word-shy Gary Cooper years after he knew her. I was in love with Miss Velez, or as much in love as one could get with a creature as elusive as Quicksilver. Welcome to this special episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast. This is Close Up, Lupe. Velez. Lupe Velez would become known for her spats. Lovers with rivals, with co-stars, other actresses like Lillian Tashman, Marlena Dietrich, Dolores Del Rio. She loved doing mocking impressions of people. She loved spending money, hosting wild parties. Lupe was often seen ringside at boxing matches, cheering on her favorite fighters. She didn't hold back. She never held back. If she loved someone, she shouted it from the rooftops. If she hated someone, she would do the same. Passionate, thrilling, wickedly funny. Compassionate, but with a hair-trigger temper. That's the impression Lupe gave the world. 
But back in 1927, she was just a teenager from Mexico. Even in Hollywood, there are many kinds of luck. There is, for instance, the luck of Lupe Valles. Lupe was one of the two unknowns selected for a leading role in Douglas Fairbanks's picture, The Gaucho. Little Mexican Lupe is black-haired, black-eyed, slendered, small, and untamed. Lupe comes from Mexico, from the seething, turbulent Mexico of incessant warfare, wrote Photoplay in their September 1927 issue. Lupe took her first whirl at art by dancing in the cantinas of Mexico City. She was a riot from the start. Her fame spread over the border, and Richard Bennett sent for her to play in the Los Angeles stage production of The Dove. When the play didn't work out, she'd been replaced by another actor, Lupe, who was born Maria Guadalupe Villalobos Velez on July 18, 1908, in San Luis, Mexico, began performing in Hollywood clubs. She was already an established vaudeville dancer in Mexico, so this was an obvious decision, and she got to work making screen tests. When in Hollywood, right? Four days, Lupe made tests, and then Hal Roach gave her a job in comedies. Lupe's stay in comedies was short because Fairbanks heard about her and demanded more tests. Lupe prayed. Her mama, her sister, and her six chihuahua dogs all prayed. And the prayers worked, with Lupe landing the leading lady role in the gaucho. In my episode all about Rudolph Valentino, I alluded to the fact that Douglas Fairbanks lacked a similar sex appeal on screen. In some ways, the gaucho was Doug's counter-argument to this. Close-up of Hollywood's happiest husband being true to his public, wrote Photoplay under a promotional picture of Doug embracing Lupe. Fans wrote to Douglas Fairbanks that the black pirate was no chic, hence Doug made the gaucho in which he falls for two girls, one pure, the other perilous. Lupe Velez is the peril. Right out the gate, despite being all of 19 years old, Lupe was never presented as the innocent option. She was not just perilous, she was the peril. In the flurry of publicity that Lupe received for this breakout role, her very first in a feature-length release, having done a couple of shorts, words like snappy, vigorous, vitality come up a lot. That's good, not too dangerous, just exciting and her reviews were exciting, too. In a review in Moving Picture World, they wrote, If Doug is 100% in the gaucho, this new kid find Lupe Valles is scarcely less. She seems to not only have it, but everything. So she finished up the year on a high. Not quite an overnight success, but a very promising newcomer. And all her publicity was positive, albeit rather exoticizing, except for one little line in picture play in their November 1927 issue. Lupe has a strange personality, the most unusual since Barbara Lamar originally flashed on the horizon. This is an extremely telling comparison and a worrying one to come so early in Lupe's career. There are some similarities between the two troubled women, but how could the writers at Pitcher Play know what was to come? Were they wizards? Barbara Lamar, for the many who may not know, was a rather notorious figure in 1920s Hollywood, who had just passed away in January 1926 at 29 years old. Extremely beautiful, Barbara had a tumultuous private life, a middling film career, including a role in Douglas Fairbanks's The Three Musketeers in 1921, and a reputation for partying to the excess. Let me be clear, it was not a nice thing to put Barbara's name in the same sentence as Lupe's. There were implications to that. They may have wrote, she has a strange personality, but they might as well have wrote, We've got another wild one on our hands. Lupe does appear to have garnered a reputation in her early days on the Mexican theater scene. She was, for example, fired from a show because of her feisty personality, 
according to biographer Michelle Vogel. She was also a rebellious teenager who had been groomed at just 13 by an older so-called boyfriend. This easily may have colored her later interactions with men. It has also been theorized, and I'll get into this in more detail later, that she may have had bipolar disorder, symptoms of which often do emerge in adolescence and early adulthood and can result in impulsivity, risk-taking, and notably energetic behaviors. However, when Lupe arrived in the Hollywood scene in 1927, whatever was just her personality, or maybe these other internal factors, was mostly just chalked up to her nationality more than anything else. When I spoke about Dolores Del Rio, Wampus Baby Star of 1926, who was also Mexican, I told you how she and Edwin Carew made sure that Dolores's reputation was as sophisticated and high-class off-screen as possible, even though it would have been easier to present an image that was closer to the bigoted image of Mexican women than American audiences already had passionate, highly sexualized, and morally suspect. Lupe's publicity team at United Artists and her management had no such qualms. If the public wanted to see her as a wild Mexican kitten, as Photoplay put it, then that is exactly what the public would get. Pep incarnate is what Hollywood calls Lupe Velez. She is a little devil on the screen, and a lot of it isn't acting said Screenland's April 1928 issue. By then, she had been named a Wampus Baby star and had her second film, Stand and Deliver, released. It was a Cecil B. DeMille production opposite Rod LaRock. But that was it for 1928, though you'd never guess it from the amount of times Lupe's name appeared in the fan magazines. She's reported grabbing people's hats off their heads, dancing like a she-dervish, and singing naughty little songs, according to Motion Picture Magazine, and having rumored romances with the likes of Charlie Chaplin and Al Jolson. Ew. Lupe's affairs are only program romances, but they are lively, amusing, and all in fun. No hearts or contracts are broken, said Photoplay. That magazine also told a funny story that they wrote out in pretty offensive broken English, so I will paraphrase. Joseph Schenk, president of United Artists, called Lupe into his office and told her that while they loved her, she needed to stop swearing so much if she wanted to be a big star. She promised that she would. A couple of days later, she was driving down Hollywood Boulevard when some jerk cut her off, so Lupe lost it and reamed him out using the nastiest, most bleep-worthy language she could think of. Of course, it was quite embarrassing when Joe Sheng himself turned around, having just been called a motherfucker. Oops! <laughs> Similarly to Clara Bow, who talked and talked to reporters and didn't seem to know that her words could ever be misconstrued, Lupe was, even at this early stage of her career, very frank and forthcoming. The Love Life Story of Lupe Velez is the headline in Motion Picture Magazine's January 1929 issue. In the piece, Lupe recounts selling kisses as a child in exchange for pictures of movie stars and candy. She claims to love making men jealous, admits to being a big old flirt with every man, and says that she never loses a man friend no matter how much she hurts him. But whereas this sort of talk gave Clara Bow's reputation quite a kicking, it merely went to solidify Lupe's as a wild card and, as Photoplay put it, a hot tamale. When she began filming her next picture, D.W. Griffith's The Lady of the Pavements, released in 1929, reports of an on-set feud with her co-star Jetta Goodall further established Lupe's bad girl image. Everyone loves a cat fight, ugh. or as Motion Picture Classic put it, their antagonism stopped just a fraction this side of fisticuffs. Exactly how violence was averted remains a mystery and a cruel disappointment to all, probably including the participants. It was a swell fight and will always have a warm place in the hearts of the local boulevardiers. 
Bets on the possible outcome and victor were laid in every office of the studio itself, big money being lost and won. During this argument, Jeddo was characterized as cool, shrewd, and calculating. Lupe, however, is called hot-tempered, even vulgar, and living from her impulses which are fiery and intense. They also say, Lupe does not think, she feels. Whatever interpersonal conflicts arose with her co-stars, and there were plenty, the crown jewel of gossip concerning Lupe would be her often volatile love life. Yes, there had been rumored romances during her thus far brief time in Hollywood, but nothing like what was to come when she met Gary Cooper. Much of the attention Lupe and Gary got in the fan magazines and the gossip columns and the stories repeated about them in the many decades since lean into the sensationalism of their relationship. And I'm probably going to do that too because I am repeating some of these stories as we go on. But let me just be crystal clear right out the gate. This was a toxic relationship. It was passionate as all hell, but Lupe abused Gary Cooper. Would he have characterized things that way? Probably not. And of course, Lupe wouldn't have either. But that doesn't excuse anything, and I'm not in the business of romanticizing toxic relationships. And I think we need to be really careful here in nearly 2024, or 2024, whenever you're listening, about dismissing dynamics like this. As for one thing, we as a society are still grappling with the idea that a six-foot-plus-tall manly man like Coop could be the victim of intimate partner violence when the perpetrator was, one, a foot shorter than him, two, a woman, and three, someone he loved deeply. Wolf Song began filming in the autumn of 1928, the Western romance directed by Victor Fleming, filmed on location. Well, Lupe's then-boyfriend, Russ Colombo, reportedly came along to kind of keep an eye on things. He had a small role, too. It didn't take long at all for Lupe and Gary to do what hot young people often do when they are stuck on location together, fall head over heels for each other. Hollywood's hotspot, the menace from Mexico, California's tropical storm, photoplay captioned a picture of Lupe in their February 1928 issue, apparently calling Lupe herself Hollywood's hotspot. Ask Gary Cooper. Lupe Velez is his leading woman in The Wolf Song, and Gary has never been so interested in a picture. Lupe has had other crushes, but at the moment of leaping to press, this one was different. And it was. Reportedly, Gary had all but moved in with Lupe by the time the film wrapped. They were basically inseparable, and stories started popping up of Lupe doing things like biting his ear, biting his legs, and when she couldn't open a window to kiss him goodbye through it, trying to break the glass instead. Rumors of an engagement were naturally quick to follow. Speaking of Lupe, it is the consensus of opinion that she and Gary Cooper will be married at an early date, wrote Photoplay. The impression is that the parental anxiety on the part of the elder Coopers had no retarding influence on the love affair between Lupe and Gary. It has all the earmarks of the genuine article. I'll get to the elder Coopers later, but first a word from Screenland's May 1929 issue. The little Mexican girl has stolen into the heart of the big boy from Montana and stayed right there. She is fiery and passionate and playful. He is langorious and quiet and strong. But they are both children of nature, both absolutely natural and without pretense. And now that Lupe Velez has announced her engagement to Gary Cooper, we have a new romance on our hands. So 1929 brought an engagement though we rarely heard confirmation from the Cooper camp. And it was also, after a couple of years in Hollywood, the year of Lupe's overnight success. Lady of the Pavements and Wolf Song were followed by Tiger Rose with Rin Tin Tin, 
and Where East is East, where Lupe played a Chinese woman. She often came to be cast as a variety of ethnicities to capitalize on her otherness. Her high-profile romance and these string of films brought lots of attention, including several fan magazine profiles. In Picture Play's feature about her Just a Little Madcap, they give this introduction. The big talky and sound men are exploiting Lupe Velez as another one of these pronoun girls, putting her up in the same tins as Alice White and Clara Bow, with a Mexican label to add a dash of chili, which is always good for the box office. They go on to call Lupe a vital young savage and a chesty soubrette, and quote her as saying she loves to steal things. Photoplay had their own profile, The Hot Baby of Hollywood, in which they say, Lupe is full of hell and fire and earth and storm and sea. She is breathless and exciting and young, as simple as a nursery rhyme, as vital as passion. If you're keeping notes, then, very spicy, but also a simpleton? Unsophisticated at any rate, it's insulting us all hell. Photoplay plows right ahead to take things way too far when they also wrote of her childhood. When she was 11 or 12 years old, other difficulties presented themselves. Even at that tender age, Lupe had sex appeal, and no race is as quick to recognize this quality as the Mexican. Jesus fucking Christ! Spicy, unsophisticated, and sexualized way too early, but somehow that's just to be expected. It's gross stuff, people. It's gross stuff. So yes, Lupe was a star in 1929, so the Wampas were right. But she was in a precarious position as a star lacking much respect. This continued on into the next year, as did her relationship with Gary Cooper. Anyone seeing those two together can't be long in doubt that they are madly in love, reported the new movie magazine in their October 1930 issue. Gary was much more annoyed than Lupe when someone printed a rumor that he wasn't quite as devoted to her as he used to be. He says he is. Now Lupe Velez, the wildcat from Mexico, had written the same magazine from their August issue in a profile of Gary. It's funny to watch Lupe and Gary together, like seeing a small typhoon playing around a big gray battleship, or a Pekingese pup annoying a Great Dane. Gary adores her, accepts all of her emotionalism, her tempestuous outbursts, her wild mirth with his slow, shy smile. When she starts kissing him in public, at the Montmartre at lunch or some such place, he takes it with a grin, embarrassed but unconcerned. There are many reports of Gary laughing off much of Lupe's behavior, and of course her teasing him and being emotional, they don't sound so bad at all but behind the scenes, but often enough in public for those in Hollywood social scene to talk about it anyway, Lupe's actions were not always so easy to brush off. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he grand? She would scream at her guests and then leap into Cooper's lap, wrote Photoplay. The next minute she would say, oh, how I hate that man, and go for him with the nearest thing at hand. There are several credible reports of her hitting him with objects, punching and scratching him to the point of drawing blood. Often extremely jealous, one account has Lupe unzipping Gary's pants in front of several people at a party and smelling his penis in an attempt to expose evidence of cheating with his close friend Anderson Lawson. Gary did have affairs with other people during the course of their relationship, However, the action on Lupe's part seems perfectly designed to humiliate him publicly, rather than get to the truth of anything. And then there's the story of the knife, which Lupe herself recounted with no small amount of pride, saying that she often came at Gary with sharp objects causing him to run away from her. But then one evening he was in the middle of making dinner and couldn't defend himself, so when she attacked him with a large knife, she successfully stabbed him in the arm. She bragged about being the only one to ever scar him for life. 
Gary's mother, with whom he was very close, wanted to see the end of the relationship. Partially because she didn't approve of Lupe's heritage, so, you know, don't assume Mrs. Cooper was some angel. But also because she could see the toll that their relationship was taking on her son. It was a toll his studio Paramount could see as well. By 1931, Gary had lost about 40 pounds from stress and was on the edge of complete emotional collapse. The studio agreed to give Gary an extended sabbatical to recover and get a clean break from Lupe. He decided to go to Europe. I've tried to find a truly credible version of what happened next, because it is oft-repeated but very difficult to prove. The story goes that when Gary arrived at the train station to catch the cross-country train out of town, Lupe followed him, and beside herself with rage, she shot at him with her pistol. Lupe missed, Gary dove into the train, and the relationship was officially over. Lupe's career, though it had taken a back seat to all the attention her tumultuous relationship brought with it, had been going okay. She worked steadily as the star or leading lady in several dramas throughout 1930 and 1931, including a sound remake of Resurrection. Directed by Edwin Carew, he remade his original 1927 version as a kind of fuck you to his original star and muse, Dolores Del Rio, selecting Lupe Velez as the two had often been pitted against each other as the two most prominent Mexican women working in Hollywood. Lupe was quite vocal about thinking Dolores was the worst, and Dolores was like, I don't think about you at all. That same year, 1931, Lupe starred in a Spanish-language version of the same film, something she did a couple of times in the early 1930s as a nice niche since she was bilingual. But on the heels of her dramatic breakup with Gary Cooper, which she discussed at length in the press, putting the blame squarely on his interfering mother and suggesting that she was so upset she might throw herself under a trolley, Lupe decided to take a break from Hollywood and go work for Flo Ziegfeld for a few months. When she returned in late 1932, Lupe showed up in a couple of sexy, fast-paced pre-code comedies, The Half-Naked Truth and Hot Pepper. Though these should seem like a natural fit for her established type, though actually she had done a lot more dramas than comedies, reviews were pretty dismal, particularly for Hot Pepper. She'd been signed with MGM for a few years by this point, but they released her from her contract in 1934. By then, Lupe's personal life was again taking center stage. Post-Gary, she'd had a short-lived affair with the great lover of the screen, John Gilbert. His career had gone into a steep decline, and his wife, Ina Clare, was divorcing him. John and Lupe both egged on the press to make a bit more of the relationship than it really was, denying engagement rumors, but never saying never. Soon, though, another man entered Lupe's life. Olympic swimmer and titular Tarzan, Johnny Weissmuller. They met while staying at the same New York hotel in 1932, quickly beginning an affair that, for a while at least, was on again off again. Johnny was married, and the affair was kept mostly quiet, not really Lupe's style, for several months until after his divorce was announced. Lupe insisted to movie classic, that it was really Johnny's brother she was dating, but it was a pretty weak excuse for all the time she was spending with Johnny. They eloped in October 1933 and had their first separation just three months later. Yes, this was another tumultuous relationship, one that kept Lupe's names connected with chaos even more strongly than before. Dubbed Hollywood's fightingest marriage, Lupe and Johnny had several public altercations, several separations, and several reconciliations. Unlike Gary Cooper, who was rather passive and rarely physically defended himself, while biographers have characterized Johnny as gentle, he does appear to have tussled with Lupe right back. In one of her divorce petitions, Lupe claimed that he threw plates and furniture at her, cutting and bruising her face. Another awful, awful story has him killing her pet parrot in a fit of jealousy as the poor bird had been taught to say Gary's name. And conversely, Lupe's habit of biting, scratching, punching, and hitting Johnny with objects was well documented. 
The marriage had so many ups and downs that reporting on the subject took a cynical turn. Crammed down everyone's throat by every newspaper is the happy news that Lupe Velez and Johnny Weissmuller are together again, the darlings, wrote Pitcher Play with a roll of the eye in their August 1934 issue. We fight and we fight and we fight, Lupe was quoted as moaning, with photographs airmailed straight from the battlefront. We will have a trial separation for two weeks, Johnny and I, to see if we will divorce or go back together again. Ah, Lupe, my shattered nerves. How was I to know that you and Johnny were even then dining at the Brown Derby with all of Hollywood's cameramen and scribblers present to witness the reconciliation of two lovebirds separated for all of six hours? I'll know better next time. Lupe is an experienced hand at front-page romancing. The echo of her great love for Gary Cooper was heard around the world. For three years, with not an outstanding performance to her credit, Lupe was hot newspaper copy. With not an outstanding performance to her credit is a mean-spirited but not entirely inaccurate assessment of Lupe's career which certainly hadn't gotten any better since her split with Gary or her marriage to Johnny. As I mentioned, in 1934, she became contractless, and though she remained in the public eye doing personal appearance tours and stage work and for her spats, for the next couple of years, as a freelancer, work was pretty quiet. She only made one film a year in 1934, 36, and 37. The studios weren't eager to work with a troublesome talent, and the public wasn't particularly excited by her antics anymore either. In a piece about celebrity autograph hunters in their January 1937 issue, Movie Classic wrote, As for Lupe Velez, none of the autograph hounds want her signature. She's too annoying, they claim. Part of the annoyance was her tumultuous relationship, which wasn't winning either Johnny or Lupe any goodwill. Silver Screen had a pretty gross feature called Which Star Got the Best Husband for their June 1936 edition, claiming that Hollywood husbands all really wore the pants in their families. They explained that the husbands all have their own ways of exerting authority. Johnny Weissmuller socks Lupe Velez, and that's that. Don't tell me that the little Mexican firebrand doesn't love being smacked by her handsome caveman husband, no matter how much she yells and screams. Ugh. Later they added, certainly it isn't his intellectual power that intrigues Lupe, implying that his appeal is as a sexy but meat-headed brute, which, you know, is okay for Tarzan, who he played in 12 feature films, but not much else further supporting his typecasting. But it's really hard to imagine that many of the magazine's target audience of young women read all that and were like, yeah, I identify strongly with Lupe, even if they didn't mind appreciating the meat-headed brute from afar. Take, on the other hand, these veteran married folk, Lupe Velez and Johnny Weissmuller. Believe it or not, they've recently celebrated their fifth wedding anniversary, wrote Motion Picture in the January 1938 issue of the Talkytown Tattler's Gossip Column. They'd actually just celebrated their fourth, but whatever. Old Man Tattler knows that there wasn't a soul in Hollywood, not even Lupe and Johnny themselves, I'll bet, who believed five years ago that they'd stay married for that long. But they did it, and on their fifth anniversary, Mr. and Mrs. Weissmuller celebrated in a quiet twosome aboard their yacht Guadalupe, anchored off Catalina Island. And throughout the day, in observance of the occasion, Lupe didn't throw a single lamp, vase, dish, chair, bed, or anything. Save kisses at Johnny. She must be getting old. It's a frustrating position to be in. Fight viciously with your husband and alienate slash annoy the public. Don't fight viciously with your husband, and you're old and you've lost your edge. Because I am supposed to be nuts, everyone blames me entirely for the divorce. Lupe was quoted in Silver Screen after their final breakup in 1938. Maybe Lupe was okay with losing some of her edge, as she continued to say, In some of my movies I act crazy, sure. That's all right for my work, 
but offstage I am not temperamental. I am very easy to get along with, yes? As for the divorce settlement, Johnny was to pay Lupe $200 a week for the next 156 weeks whenever she wasn't working. However, she actually started working quite a bit, and the period post-divorce was her most professionally successful. The earliest example of Lupe being called the Mexican Spitfire that I could find was back in 1931, but it really took off as a nickname in a series of films that she did with RKO. Beginning with 1939's The Girl from Mexico, in the Mexican Spitfire series, Lupe finally found her niche, playing the character Carmelita Fuentes, a feisty and fiery Latina played sympathetically and with great comedic skill. The culture shock comedies, of which there were eight in total, were solidly B-movies, but they were extremely popular and spelled the resurgence of Lupe's career. This picture is a welcome to Lupe Velez, who is back with her dazzling vivacity, unimpaired by some time off the screen, wrote Hollywood Magazine of the first film. It in no way can be considered a production of major importance, but it is coherent, amusing, and rather more fun than the average B-picture, and if you have been saying whatever happened to Lupe, this is your chance to find out. Professionally, the next few years were solid for Lupe, but she was still struggling to find solid ground in her personal life, or to fully sell the public on the more stable version of herself. With an engagement to Gwyn Big Boy Williams, Lupe attempted to redeem her image, doing a quite compelling interview with Modern Screen in early 1941, where she pointed out that she really couldn't win with the press at all. I do not go out much anymore, because if I enter a nightclub and I say to my escort, please, my coat, the next day appear headlines which read, Lupe Velez screams in night spot. It reminds me very, very much of today, when if a woman in the public eye says something quite rational and benign, the headlines always seem to read that they blasted or slammed someone. It isn't at all hard to believe that a perfectly innocuous nothing of an interaction would then be sensationalized and lied about, because, well, so little has changed, but also because that was what was expected from Lupe. In fact, even though I've painted a picture of Lupe in this episode that suggests her private persona wasn't that far off from her public persona, the whole thing should be taken with a grain of salt, because while I do think she did her fair share of screaming in night spots, stories about her were undoubtedly exaggerated much of the time. Were first-hand accounts exaggerated too? I mean, who knows? But if we believe, say, Errol Flynn, I don't know that we do, her newfound calmness during her relationship with Big Boy was short-lived. Errol wrote in his memoir, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, that at his house he saw Lupe bean big boy in the head with a framed photo of himself, take the picture out of the frame, rip it in two, and pee on it. I have questions, but one of them is, why did you have a framed picture of your friend big boy, Errol? But another question I have is, was this just included in the memoir to perpetuate this myth about crazy Lupe Velez? Or were these stories overall basically true? There is no way of knowing. Anyway, it was all over with Big Boy. Other relationships followed, with their small share of public arguments and short-lived engagement, but overall less attention was paid to Feisty Lupe. Her attempts to change her image and show more of the real her didn't do much. For example, a piece in Hollywood Magazine called She Gets Away With Murder, explains how most of her bust-ups with co-stars, for example, were actually in defense of other people. The truth is this. Those who know Lupe and have worked with her adore her. They know that Lupe appears to be a spitfire, but she is really a softie. They know, too, that Lupe has never picked a fight unless she was fighting for someone who wasn't big enough to fight for himself. 
Then Lupe really hauls off, like the time she was working with a well-known actress who specializes in sedate, ladylike roles. This actress was wearing a black velvet gown when a young prop boy bringing her a glass of water accidentally spilt it on her dress. The woman flew into a rage. "'You stupid lummocks!' she screamed at the terrified boy. "'Get out of here!' and with that she slapped him. The boy was hurt and humiliated, but he could do nothing. To answer back might cost him his job." In a moment, Lupe jumped up. She yelled at the woman. Why did you hit him? You know he can't talk back to you, but I can. And I'll give you what you give him. And Lupe slapped the actress. The next day, the incident was whispered about in Hollywood, but the story ran wild that Lupe smacked the actress out of a savage urge. Only the grip workers and extras who had watched and silently applauded the scene knew that La Lupe had risked criticism and gossip again for the sake of another person. She is also quoted as saying in the piece, I get criticized for my temper, but really it is not such a bad one, for right after I lose it I apologize and the whole thing is forgotten. My temper is destructive only to me. I hurt my throat from screaming. I think it is probable that this is exactly how Lupe saw herself, and probably why so many of the people who loved her stayed with her for so long. Because for all the damage she could inflict, she believed deep down that she was the one suffering. And, and again, it, it's hard to argue that she wasn't suffering. But she didn't have the tools to do better by herself or those around her. She met an aspiring actor, Harold Raymond, real name Harold Maresh, sometime in 1943, and they embarked on a relationship. Harold was originally from Austria. He attended med school in Paris, coming to America when war broke out. In 1944, he was in his late 20s, a couple of years younger than Lupe, and working for Warner Brothers, dubbing films into French. He'd also appeared on screen with one of Lupe's former fiancés, Arturo de Cordova. Lupe and Harold dated steadily, according to Lupe's biographer, Michelle Vogel, for at least six months. She announced their engagement in November 1944. A few weeks later, she announced their breakup. Par for the course, same old Lupe. No one paid much attention. Behind the scenes, though, things were different this time. Lupe was pregnant. According to Vogel, when Harold was informed by Lupe's business managers, there was considerable confusion and miscommunication. English was neither Lupe nor Harold's first language, remember? The business managers told Harold he needed to marry Lupe, but that it didn't need to be a real marriage per se, he just needed to do the right thing. Harold later claimed that he truly was in love with Lupe and would have married her for real with no hesitation but that he had some business affairs to deal with and essentially tried to tell Lupe this, but used the word fake marriage. She thought he was rejecting her, and perhaps he was in his version of events as a retcon of sorts. But regardless of his intentions, Lupe was heartbroken, terrified, and alone. Being an unwed mother in 1944 Hollywood was not acceptable. Being an unwed mother as a Catholic was not acceptable either. I haven't touched much on the theory that Lupe may have been bipolar or had another mental health condition that could well have contributed to her state of mind that December. I don't think it's wholly appropriate to pathologize anyone since I'm not a mental health practitioner and it has been so many decades since. However, her ups and downs seemingly erratic behavior, impulsivity, it all fits in with someone dealing with a lot beneath the surface. The hormones that come with pregnancies may have exacerbated this. But even taking that out of the equation, Lupe's situation was a dangerous one. A few days after the breakup with Harold, Lupe was struggling, and her friends were really worried about her. Close friend Estelle Taylor visited with her on the night of December 13th at around 9.30. She later said that Lupe told her about the pregnancy, told her about her desperation, her exhaustion, and her disillusionment with the world, about her strong feelings against abortion as an option, about feeling like she had no options at all. 
Estelle stayed by Lupe's side until the early hours of the morning, presumably thinking they had weathered the storm for now. After Estelle left, Lupe went to bed, but not before taking a reported 75 secondal sleeping pills. She would have been rendered unconscious almost instantly. That's how secondal works. Even a smaller amount would have knocked her out. Biographer Michelle Vogel quite convincingly explains in her book that the idea that Lupe could have taken secondal at her bedside, where evidence of the sleeping medication was found, and made it all the way to the bathroom to vomit, is actually absurd. No, she died in her bed, where she was discovered a few hours later by her longtime assistant, Beulah Kinder. She left a note addressed to Harold. It's angry and it's hurt. There's an urge when someone dies by suicide to try to pinpoint one singular why or why not, and I've always found this to be an absurd exercise. For Lupe, many have pointed out that her actions were baffling. If she was a Catholic and against abortion, how does suicide make any sense? Others, including her ex-partners, have wondered how a woman so confident and desired, how could she be so upset over some guy like Harold? Others, including the Beverly Hills chief of police who was on the scene, theorized that it had all been a miscalculation, a terrible, terrible mistake. But since none of us are Lupe, none of us know exactly how she was feeling or what was going through her mind that early morning, and no one could logic away what happened and change the past. While the newspapers talked a great deal about Lupe's death, the fan magazines were relatively quiet. We Remember Lupe was a subheading in Cal York's Inside Stuff column in Photoplay's March 1945 issue. As we came to know her better, we learned many things about Lupe, they wrote. That great pride and sensitiveness hidden behind a strident voice, a laughing front, and an I-don't-care attitude that fooled so many. It was that same pride and sensitiveness that, sure as fate, killed Lupe Velez, several years later. Photoplay blamed not Gary Cooper himself, but the loss of that great love as Lupe's real downfall, saying, Nothing seemed to matter much after that. She slipped into bee pictures because, well, it didn't matter, really. She slipped in and out of marriage to Johnny Weissmuller, a marriage punctuated with violent quarrels and disagreements. The color began to fade and the light to dim in Lupe Velez the day Gary walked out of her home, but her pride would never let her admit it. It's not necessarily as ridiculous as it sounds to be bringing up an ex-boyfriend from over a decade previously and writing about Lupe's death. Several sources believe, despite the official break in their relationship and subsequent marriages to other partners, that Lupe and Gary may have remained intertwined for much longer than anyone else knew. At the very least, he seems to have remained on Lupe's mind. Do I think, as some authors have suggested, that Gary was in fact the father of Lupe's unborn child? Well, that's just not something we can ever know. I think it's a symptom of Harold being such an underwhelming character that people want the story to be more exciting, so they want the most famous man Lupe had ever been with to be the father. It's hardly impossible, but that doesn't make it true, either. The person who said it the most loudly, Robert Slatzler, claimed Gary admitted paternity to him directly, but he was also the fellow who claimed to be secretly married to Marilyn Monroe, and thus, to put it bluntly, was a known crank. Cranks and liars love to latch on to the Lupe Velez story. Most notably, of course, Kenneth Anger, author of Hollywood Babylon, a work of intentionally outrageous fiction that has somehow entered public consciousness as fact. His version of Lupe's death is callous, racist, sexist, and gross. It's also not true, but we, the public, we don't care so much about the truth, do we? Not when we can use a pregnant woman's death for comedy. I wonder why we do this. Is it to send ourselves a warning about suicide? 
Lupe, in her pain and suffering, tried to be in control of one single thing at the end of her life, and that is a terrifying concept, so the legends surrounding the act must be filled with ridicule and degradation. Or is it that the hatred of women, particularly non-conforming women or women of color, it's so fucking strong that even in death, society must strip them of all dignity? Is twisting Lupe's death into a comedy of errors that position her as a vain, overdramatic fool who planned out the perfect death only to end up in the most crude place possible? the only way to forgive ourselves. That is, the world that Lupe lived in, which offered her nothing in the way of support as an unwed mother or the mental health care that she so desperately needed that early morning. I'll leave you with this oddly prophetic excerpt from Picture Play, all the way back in April 1929. There is something pitiful about Lupe's avid grasping at life and experience, about her eagerness to have her fun, to run the gamut of emotions while she is young. She works, plays, lives too hard. One feels that she will burn herself out before it is time. Lupe will suffer. People, the world, men, will laugh at her, applaud her, pet her a little, and forget her. She doesn't, somehow, matter. She wants to matter. She wants it tremendously. Perhaps suffering will help her to matter on the screen. One feels now that she has not too much to offer. A fleeting beauty, an impression of excellent joy. She is all body, emotion, instinct, impulse. Perhaps life will teach her and give her depth. She says, when the public no longer love to see me, I will die. I will kill myself. Perhaps that is the secret of her eagerness, of her desire to taste everything now. She is the Latin type which matures so young. Does Lupe look at that mother resigned with folded hands in her forties and realize her time, too, is short? Is it fear that rouses Lupe to a veritable frenzy of living? Poor little Lupe. Thank you for listening to this special close-up episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please spread the word, leave a rating, give me a review, and of course subscribe if you haven't already. There will be new episodes in the new year, where we'll be continuing on with the Wampus Baby Stars list of 1929. I've been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl. <laughs>